Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my conversation with Dr. Aaron Horshig about rebuilding Milo. Prior to that, though, wanted to remind you about BooksOnPod.com. You can hear every episode there as well as subscribe to the show, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other podcasting platform. And stay in the know on new episodes and hear highlights of previous episodes by following us on Twitter and Facebook at BooksOnPod. This is Dan Lieberman. I'm author of Exercised, Why Something We Never Evolved to Do is Healthy and Rewarding. And you're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Elling, and I've totally enjoyed this great conversation. Hello, readers. Dr. Aaron Horshig is a physical therapist, strength and conditioning coach, speaker, and writer. His work includes Squat University and is the author of the new book, Rebuilding Milo, The Lifter's Guide to Fixing Common Injuries and Building a Strong Foundation for Enhancing Performance. Aaron, thank you for the time today. I guess a good starting point is to find out about the title character of Rebuilding Milo. So, who is Milo? That's a great question. So, Milo is an ancient Greek Olympian, known by most to be one of the greatest athletes of all time. Many, many time Olympian back in the day in the sport of wrestling. Well, as the story goes, as a young child, Milo lifted a small calf to his shoulders and would walk around with it. And as the calf grew into a full-grown bull, so did Milo's strength. So his story, sort of as the fable goes, set the precedent for modern-day periodization. The way in which we look at strength training is that day one you come in, you can bench press 100 pounds. Well, if you slowly add some weight over time, you can get stronger and stronger. That's how we amass strength. Well, the idea of rebuilding Milo is both science and fable mixed together. And what happens is that in today's society, we sort of disobey the science part of things in that we keep on trying to build and build and build. And sometimes we find injuries. And every single person that has walked into the gym has dealt with aches and pains. There's back pain. Maybe my hip hurts a little bit this week. My knee hurts. And the older we get and the more we lift weights, the more and more we find these small little aches and pains. So in our own version of trying to become Milo, we're sort of hampered with these injuries. We're not really found or told the best routes in which we can go to fix them which is why I decided to write a book called Rebuilding Milo, basically a way in which we can go about things and take the first steps to become empowered, to get out of pain and get back to doing the things that we love to do, no matter what your athletic pursuits are, if you want to be a powerlifter or a weightlifter or a crossfitter, or you know, you just like staying fit, you like staying strong through the rest of your life. I love this idea of empowering the individual to correct his or her own issues. When did it click for you that something like this was even an option? Man, let me tell you. So I have been a physical therapist for over a decade now. And before that, I competed in the sport of Olympic weightlifting. So I have this strength conditioning background, and I tried to blend that with my approach to physical therapy. And in working with athletes, I always found this problem in that athletes don't seek out medical help until their performance is suffering. And it's because as a society, we're sort of told no pain, no gain, keep on pushing. It's normal for things to ache. And we're not really told how to address them properly. If you watch any single TV show for more than an hour, you're going to see five commercials for Tylenol or Aleve. You're dealing with back pain, just take some Tylenol. Or you're dealing with this, take this medication. We're told to cover it up. There's Copperfit commercials and things like that. We're not told 
how to really address pain the right way. We're just told how to cover up the symptoms. So I've seen this, this vast gap in the way in which we are addressing injuries nowadays, and I felt like this was the thing that needed to fill that gap. And too often, we're talked down to from the medical community. You go to a doctor, and maybe they take some x-rays, and they speak to you in a language that you don't understand. Maybe you go to a physical therapist, and they give you some exercises. But there's nothing really great for that in-between to sort of empower the person that, hey, they're benching one day, ah, their shoulder's hurting a little bit. Well, what do you do? Well, you can ask your gym buddy what they did because you know they had shoulder pain a while ago. But that's often not the best route because there's many different reasons people can develop pain. That's what this book solves in that if someone's having that ache and pain, they turn to the chapter where they're having that pain and it brings them through individualized tests and measures to uncover and they go, oh, I have this shoulder injury because I'm lacking stability. Well, here's some individualized exercises I can do to get out of pain and get back to doing the things that I want to do. So it flips the medical model upside down, if you will. And while this book may speak to lifters and athletes first and foremost, one of the reasons why I like it is because it is such a great resource guide for any, not anybody necessarily, because there are some people who need to seek medical help, but a lot of people who are Mm -hmm. in just a generalized pain that can actually do something more about that to relieve the pain and get their body stronger at the same time. And as you just referenced, you did a great job of breaking this book down into sections, the different parts of the body that tend to cause people the most problems. The back, the hips, the knees, the ankle, uh, elbow is on there. Shoulder is uh, a part of the groupings as well. Let's start with the back because I feel like uh, pretty much all of my friends, I'm in my early 40s now, all of my Mm -hmm. friends, myself included, do deal with some sort of back issue. Why are MRIs not necessarily a great way to diagnose back pain, especially if it's something like a bulging disc? That's a great question. Here's the deal people need to understand. If you're over the age of 30, there is at least a 30% chance that you have an abnormality in your spine if you were to get an MRI today regardless if you have back pain or not. So think about wrinkles to the skin. As we age, there are normal changes that occur at the spinal level that aren't necessarily a bad thing. So the medical model traditionally today, if you have back pain, you're going to go to a doctor and he's going to order an MRI. And he will presume that what he sees on MRI to be at fault in the current cause of your pain. And that may or may not be the case. There's a lot of research out there. This is not brand new science. This is stuff that's been out there in the literature for a long time. That disc bulges, degenerative disc disease, arthritis, these are normal changes to the back that occur in people who have no back pain. So we cannot assume that the abnormality you see on MRI is automatically a sign of what is causing pain. So instead, what we do is we use a movement-based model to diagnose what the injury is. So throughout the book, you'll learn what a bulging disc is. You'll learn how it occurs. But that's not how you're going to classify your injury. You'll do different tests and measures to uncover what specific movements, postures, and the loads that you do throughout your day and lift, what creates your pain. So instead of saying someone has a bulging disc, They would go through the tests and maybe they find that they are flexion intolerant, meaning that their spine becomes painful when they're rounding their back or when they sit with a very slouched posture. So the spine is in a flexed position in understanding that 
actually is a better thing for you than knowing whether or not the bulging disc is the cause of pain. Because a movement-based diagnosis allows you to take the first steps to fixing the problem. Just because you have a bulging disc does not mean that there's one particular path of treatment that's going to be best to get you out of pain. But knowing someone maybe has a flexion intolerance says right off the bat, okay, I need to avoid in the short term positions and movements that bend my spine. So if I'm bending forward to get a dish out of the dishwasher, I'm going to kneel or I'm going to hinge at the hips and not allow my back to round because rounding my back is a thing that triggers my pain. Or maybe if I sit for too long, I have a desk job and I'm sitting for eight hours a day and my back hurts after like an hour of sitting. Well, maybe it's because you're sitting with a slouched posture. So what could you do in the short term? You could take a towel or a jacket and roll it up and put it underneath your low back. Now all of a sudden you've created a lumbar support and your spine assumes a more neutral position. It's not slouching or flexing. Now you're not pushing into your trigger. Now you can take the first steps to getting out of pain. So classifying someone with this movement-based diagnostic system, and this is what most physical therapists today use as a way of treating. So while you may go to a medical doctor and get a pathoanatomical diagnosis, meaning they are trying to diagnose your symptoms based on a specific tissue that they believe to be at fault, a physical therapist tells you how you are diagnosing your injury based on movement because it empowers you to know what you can do directly after to actually make a physical change and get you out of pain in a way that the prior thing could not. And it's important to note, and this is something that you stress throughout the book, you are not suggesting somebody who's dealing with an injury issue to just lie dormant altogether. It's to figure out what that activity, what that movement is that's causing the most pain, find another way to do that, but still remain relatively active even with the injured body part too. Oh, exactly. The last thing you want to do when you're in an injury is to just take time off. Because what's going to happen is that while your pain may wind down, you're not addressing why the pain even started in the first place. So what we want to do is always be proactive in our approach. So it starts with an evaluation, and this is for any part of the body. So I cover shoulder, elbow, hip, back, knee, ankles. And once you have your evaluation, then you have a plan that's put in place to help you be proactive in getting yourself out of pain and building back that capacity so that you can eventually do all the things that you were doing prior but without pain. So it is all about being proactive and moving and not just resting because that's what we're told to do nowadays is either try to cover it up with pain meds or you'll go to a doctor and say, well, how did you hurt yourself? Well, you know, I was squatting and my back started hurting. And the doctor will say what? We'll take this pain medication and stop lifting for three weeks. Well, that doesn't fix the problem. Sure, your back pain may go away, but the next time you go back to squatting, you didn't fix anything. So your chances of that pain coming back is extremely high. Nowadays, if you look at the research, 80% of the U.S. population will have back pain at some time in their life, and a large percentage of those people will have a recurring episode in the future because they never addressed why that pain even started. They took some time off, they maybe took some pain medication, the pain went away, but they didn't fix the problem. They didn't fix the why. And if you don't fix the why, your likelihood of reoccurring injuries rises dramatically. 
So rebuilding Milo clicked with me from the get-go, but as soon as I read you telling people about the McGill exercises, Dr. Stuart McGill over in Australia Mm -hmm. is a back injury specialist, and he has a big three exercise routine that he suggests people go through if you're dealing with mid-low back issues. This is something I discovered on my own back in the summer when I was dealing with crippling back issues. I was going to chiropractics. I had a dry needling guy that was trying to help me out, some massage, some other things as well. They helped a little bit, but it wasn't correcting the issue. As soon as I started doing these exercises, I want to say for a couple of weeks, and this is something that I've kept up since then, it was a game changer for me. What are the big three exercises for improved core strength and a reduction in low back pain, according to Dr. McGill? So Dr. McGill is the foremost expert in the world on back biomechanics and how the back becomes injured. He spent years and years studying these different uh, mechanisms by which the back is injured. And in his research, he found that there was this combination of three core exercises, which then became nicknamed the McGill Big Three. And what it does is it stabilizes the core, but in a very low load manner. So what does that mean? When we look at the spine, it's a very, very flexible rod, similar to like maybe a fishing pole, in that if you were to stand it straight up and down and put a brick on top of it, it would just bend like crazy. And your spine is designed to bend. I mean, that's how you dance. That's how you bend forward to tie your shoes or you extend your spine to put something above your head or swing a golf club. Your spine was designed to move. But often we find that injury occurs when we lack stability. Now, in specific to rebuilding Milo, I'm talking to a lot of people who enjoy fitness-related activities like lifting. And when we lift, we want that spine to become stiffened and not move, similar to the way in which a guy wire system holds up a radio tower. And you have all these long lines that are some spanning very long, some spanning very short, but they give integrity to the radio tower. Well, in the same sense, you have muscles that surround your spine and they attach and run off and basically stiffen the spine whenever you go to lift so that they limit the amount of movement that occurs there and your spine stays safe. Now, the McGill Big Three works on creating that stiffness through three different exercises, the modified curl up, side plank, and the bird dog. And they work all parts of the spine because there is no one size fits all way to hit the core. So the core is a very general term to describe the muscles that surround the spine on the front, back, and sides. We have to be very optimal in taking the right exercises that are going to get all three of them. And basically what you're doing is you're stiffening and then creating some sort of movement, either with the modified curl up, you're lifting your head, the side plank, you're just coming up into a side plank, and the bird dog, you're going from an all force position and lifting your arms and lifting your legs. And what you're doing is holding for 10 seconds and maintaining that brace. And that's going to instill this stiffness within your spine. And a lot of people will find immediate relief with their back pain and build back that resiliency within a very, very short amount of time. I've had patients recently that, uh, for example, bending forward was so painful, just trying to get their baby out of a crib. Their back is just so painful. And then they do the McGill Big Three. They learn to stiffen their spine and then move about their hips. And instantly their back pain is greatly diminished. And the thing is that a lot of people who are in extreme back pain can still do the McGill Big Three. Like I said, it's a low load exercise regimen, meaning that there's not a lot of forces placed on the spine. So sometimes even the most irritated backs can still perform this movement without more pain occurring at the spine. 
you do a great job of explaining how the glutes and the hips can affect a bad back, how to self-diagnose that issue, how to turn those body parts back on, and also strengthen them up over time. How much do hamstrings affect a tight back? Has research shown us one way or another? Because I know it's common thought that the hamstrings can oftentimes be the root of a sore back issue. And that's actually one of the biggest myths within the medical community nowadays is that we will look at someone in back pain and we go, oh, your hamstrings are stiff. That's why you have back pain. Well, actually, the reason the hamstrings are stiff is a neurological response to the back pain itself, not the cause of back pain. There's some research that has been shown that they've taken people who are out of back pain, so completely pain-free, and they've broken them down into categories. People who are of no back pain and have very flexible hamstrings, people who have no back pain but have stiff hamstrings, and then people who have back pain. And the people who had back pain had stiffer hamstrings than those who had no back pain but had stiff hamstrings. And what they're showing is that the presence of back pain neurologically changes the way in which the body is moving and stiffening itself in that the hamstrings will become tighter as a result of the pain. And what this means is that stretching the hamstrings is not the way to get out of pain. You're going about it the wrong way. We want to learn how to stiffen the spine, how to take and wind down the painful symptoms that we have. And in doing so, the hamstrings will return to their natural length that you had prior to developing back pain in the first place. Yeah, and people really do overvalue stretching the hamstrings. It can provide a nominal value, but what is the best way to handle the hamstrings to uh, to just maximize what they're able to do for you? And I think it has to do more with mobility than anything else, correct? Yeah, really the big thing is that a lot of times we don't have to stretch muscles because stretching muscles doesn't help us move better. Stretching muscles just elongates the muscle in the short term. But when we look at mobility, and that's a big thing, is the definition between flexibility and mobility, those are two different things. Flexibility is the ability for a muscle to elongate, whereas mobility is the ability for a joint or joint complex to move through a full range of motion. Now, you need a certain amount of flexibility to allow your body to move through a full range of motion, but mobility has a movement component to it, a weight-bearing component. So, for example, someone could have the most flexible hamstrings in the world, but yet lack the ability to sit into a deep squat because they don't have the movement control. So instead of working on stretching the hamstrings, I would work on mobility drills, and I cover a number of them in the book, but these are things that you can find on YouTube, all over. I try to put out as much free information as possible across social media, but things like the world's greatest stretch, or a hip airplane, or banded joint mobilizations, or a deep goblet squat, basically teaching the body how to move better through full ranges of motion will be more helpful to you especially helping you get out of pain than pure flexibility exercises. Mobility over static stretching for working out, playing a sport, something like that, you will greatly benefit from that. Moving on to hip pain now, Aaron. Why is Mm -hmm. hip pain so difficult to diagnose? The biggest reason why it's so difficult to diagnose is because there are literally so many different things that can be presumed to be at fault. Just on the front side alone, if we look at the anterior hips, I mean, you have the hip flexor strains, you could have adductor strains, you could have hip impingements. There's so many different areas right in a very small area. 
that can create pain. So it's very difficult to sort of weed out, again, from my medical perspective, what is the true anatomical source for pain? But again, we don't need to know that to take the first steps to get you out of pain. Again, we look at mobility and stability issues. So that's where the testing comes in to understand, oh, my left hip, I'm lacking 15 degrees of hip internal rotation. I don't need to know whether or not the specific tissue that may be at fault that's creating the pain, I know there's a movement issue. And I can fix that mobility issue with specific exercises that will then help me get out of pain and return to the things that I wanna do. So the hip can be a very complex area because like I said, on the front side, you have a lot of different tissues. On the side, you have potentially bursitis or greater trochanteric pain. You could have a tendinopathy. On the back side, there's piriformis syndrome, there's glute medius strains. It's really hard to tell sometimes exactly what tissue may be at fault. But again, if there's one thing people can take away from this book and all the things that I preach through Squat University, it's that we need to look at the body through movement perspective, a movement lens, take a step back, do testing, and find out what your individual reason is for pain. Because if I have two people that come to me and they both have complaints of pain on the front side of their hip, they could have a very different treatment process that they need to get out of pain and get back to doing the things that they want to do. I'm glad you mentioned the hip flexors. That's a body part that finally seems like it's receiving its proper due. What are the hip flexors and why are they so important? Yeah, so the hip flexors, technically, it's a group of muscles called your iliopsoas, and they run from your lower back and attach onto the front side of your body. Now, they're a very helpful muscle at doing what they are called. They flex the hip. But what happens is that a lot of times they can get overly irritated when other areas of the body are not working as optimally as possible. So, for example, if you lack core stability, a lot of times the body will call upon the area that's right next to it your hip flexors to work double time. So a lot of times people have this nagging hip flexor pain, and if you watch the move, they just have poor core stability, and they're making these muscles work double time. Or if you have poor lateral hip stability, they may be using those hip flexors to do a lot more than they need to do. So they're a commonly overused muscle. We see the anterior hip flexor be something that is a very common and overly dominant phase, something that is a pattern that we commonly go to more than we should because other areas are underutilized throughout the day and because of the different postures that we assume. People have all sorts of tools to help wake body parts up. Some of the most popular right now and some things that I own in my house are foam rollers and lacrosse balls. Specific with the hips, are those good tools to use on the hips and what's the best way to roll your hips out? Yeah, I think every single tool that you can see popularized today, think of it only, like you mentioned, it's a tool in the toolbox. And sometimes we need it, sometimes we don't. What it does is it's going to help deactivate certain muscles or they could help activate certain muscles based on how you use them. So for example, if someone has a very, very stiff muscle and things are just balled up and tensed up, you can roll on that area very slowly. And I want to basically be a very mean massage therapist for yourself. <laughs> That's the phrase that some people use. And uh, sorry to any massage therapist who may be listening. 
listening to this. But the, the idea is that you want to find some spots that hurt a little bit and you want to be mean to them. You want to apply some pressure into it. And sometimes that slow tension over time, it will help that muscle neurologically relax and allow tension to bleed out. And you can allow yourself then to move a little bit better so that you can then do other activities, other exercises to sort of fix why that area became stiff in the first place. So a foam roller or lacrosse ball, a great tool in the toolbox, never something to be used only by itself because it doesn't address, well, why did that area become stiff in the first place? When you do start to get the hip pain to subside enough to where you can work out a little bit more, what are some of your favorite basic exercises for the hips? So I love the, the just most standard movements, fundamental movements of a squat, a single leg squat, a deadlift, an RDL, things like that that you see within the gym. But just the way in which they are performed is key to getting out of pain and building back that body of resiliency. Understanding that we want to create very specific cues within the body when we're moving. When we're squatting, a lot of people look at the squat, they're like, oh, you just squat down. Well, there's very particular cues that in steps you need to take to maintain proper alignment within your body and turn the muscles on that we want turned on at the right time coordination-wise. So for example, let's say you're getting back to building back resiliency and you want to start on a squat. Well, when you start with a squat, we want to grab the ground with our feet. Some people use like the cue of a monkey's foot. Grab the ground, create that stability. You're then going to open your hips and create external rotation torque, which is basically screwing the feet in the ground and you'll feel the glutes almost contract a little bit. And this aligns the lower body in the most optimal position possible, turns the glutes on, you'll feel them tremble. And then we're starting with a slight hip hinge to engage the posterior chain, your glutes, your hamstrings. And then we're squatting down and maintaining proper balance, not shifting your weight to your heels. That's a big cue a lot of people improperly use. You know, weight in the heels, weight in the heels. Don't think that. Think weight through the full foot. Your full foot should be grabbing the ground and weight spread evenly across the tripod foot. So you have your weight evenly spread across your heel, your first toe, and the base of your fifth toe. And things like that can allow you to then move in a more optimal manner decrease pain. And then again, like I mentioned, you're building back strength and capacity to then handle more and more load and get back to doing what you were capable of prior to the injury. I'm guessing there are a fair number of people who just heard you talking about squats and say, yeah, well, that's great for somebody that can actually do a squat, but my body won't allow me to do a full squat. Do we overestimate what our limitations are with regards to squats or does a lot of this come down to either not doing it properly or, or not waking the right body parts up to allow you to ultimately get your butt closer to the ground. Every single person is capable of performing a squat. Unless you have a physical limitation that keeps you into a wheelchair, you can squat. If you can walk, you can squat. And the big thing is how you do that makes all the difference. My first book, The Squat Bible, literally took people through how to perform a proper squat. Now, I'm not saying every single person has the anatomy or the capability to squat deep, 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 where your hip is literally touching your heel, but every single person has the capability to perform a squat. It's just learning how to do it correctly and walking through the correct patterns and the coordination because it truly is one of those things that if you don't use it, you lose it. You forget how to perform this. But if you look at a baby, watch a baby at one to two years old, grab something off the ground. They can squat perfectly. No one taught them how it's a neurological pattern that we learn at a young age. Yet as we get older, 
we stop performing the movement. We resort to sitting all day. We bend forward and hinge at the hips to grab things off the ground. And in our industrialized world, we stop squatting because we don't need to throughout the day often. But yet if you go to any third world country or any country in the you know Asian hemisphere, you're going to see people just sitting. Like you go to China, you'll see people sitting at the bus stop in a deep squat. So it's something you should be able to perform any where you are at any age in life. It's just learning how to perform it and maintaining it throughout your life. I loved your breakdown of knee pain and what to do to self-assess and get things right. Uh, a lot of people may not realize this, but there are some common causes of knee pain that have very little to do with the knee. Things like patellofemoral syndrome, IT band syndrome, patellar or quad tendinopathy. The IT band is another one of those body parts that seems to have really gained in popularity over the last 10 to 15 years. So what is IT band syndrome? Yeah, so the IT band is this thick piece of leather, basically, if you want to think about it like that. It's basically thick, dense fascia, which is a very dense material tissue-wise that runs on your lateral leg, and it connects your hip to your lateral knee. Now, especially in people who do a lot of running, it's common to have lateral knee pain right at where the IT band connects to the lateral knee. Now, the reason this area gets so much popularity is because it's very commonly poorly treated, just like a lot of areas are in the knee, a lot of knee pain, is we think that where the symptoms are is the cause of pain. And oftentimes, it can be related to problems at the hip and or ankle. So areas that connect to the knee. If you want to think about it like this, your knee is basically like a door hinge. Now, if you open the door handle and pull it straight out like a door hinging openly and closing in the way it should, that hinge can open and close the rest of its life without any issues. But if you automatically start opening the door handle, now you pull up or you shove down on that door handle, all of a sudden that door hinge, the joint axis isn't moving as optimally as possible. That door hinge is going to wear out very quickly. Well, the same thing happens at the knee in that oftentimes if we have ankle issues, maybe a mobility limitation side to side or hip issues. Maybe we have mobility issues side to side and or uh, one side, maybe you're a little bit weaker, you're not stabilizing well. Whenever you then move throughout your day, go for a run, do some squats, do some deadlifts, there's going to be uneven forces placed on the hinge in between them, aka your knee. And eventually, different things become angry. So a lot of times, when you hear someone dealing with knee pain, we automatically assume the site of pain is the problem. So we do different things like foam roll at that area or take icy hot around that area or wear a strap around your knee. Things like that are only trying to address the symptoms. We're not looking at the problems. So you need to take a step back again. Look at the body through the lens of movement, not through a microscope, and understand and figure out, oh, my right hip? man, I'm lacking a ton of stability. When I try to do a single leg squat, I almost fall over on my right side. Yet on my left side, I've got pretty good stability. Well, there you go, right there. That's something that you just figured out that you can take the right steps to then addressing the why to get out of pain and build back to doing what you wanted to do beforehand. Why is ankle mobility an important part of the screening process with the knee? It's because it's one of the most common problems that we don't even think about. Again, we focus so commonly at the site of symptoms, at the knee joint. We don't even look at the ankle. Well, throughout our day, we are often in very bad shoes. 
that have high heel lifts. I'm not talking even dress shoes. You look at most Nikes or Adidas, they've got a pretty big heel lift in them, and we don't move through full ranges of motion. Anyone listening to this, how long are you sitting in a deep squat throughout your day? Most people would say probably never, or maybe they squat at the gym, but they're never sitting in a deep bodyweight squat throughout the day. So you're never even using your full capability of ankle mobility throughout your day. So it should become of no surprise to us that sometimes that joint just starts to stiffen up because you're never expressing the motion it should be capable of using and performing. And when we develop side-to-side differences in ankle mobility, it can limit how the knee is then basically absorbing force in that sometimes the knee will take on more load more quickly when you're even doing simple things like walking down the stairs. Needless to say, the more dynamic you're getting, you're running. You're doing a squat at the gym. You're doing a deadlift. The more load, more quickly placed on the knee joint, eventually tissues get angry. And when they get angry, they eventually you reach the biological tipping point that that area of your body can handle. Pain ensues. So again, we got to take a step back. Ankle mobility is often one of the most common faults that lead to problems up the chain. So knee pain, hip pain, back pain. So if we don't ever uncover it, We're not really truly fixing the problem. So that's why I tell people, if you go to a physical therapist or a doctor, a chiropractor, anyone for your knee pain, and they don't look at your ankles, you're at the wrong person. I am amongst that group of people who has ankle mobility issues. Is there a uh, common or fairly surefire way to get your ankles to loosen up to become a little bit more flexible for everything else? Yeah, so the first thing is just starting some mobility drills. So starting things like a little bit of foam rolling of the calf, banded joint mobilizations, very simple exercises that you can do to start expressing a little bit more mobility there. Then we also have to do things like using that new full motion. So sitting in a deep squat throughout your day, going barefoot more often because here's the deal. A lot of people have very stiff ankles, yet they're never out of their shoes. And when you are never out of your shoes, you often create a weak foot. And a weak foot leads to stiffness compensation at the ankle. So I'm a big fan of getting out of your shoes as much as possible. Are knee braces, sleeves, and wraps beneficial for somebody dealing with knee pain? They can be beneficial sometimes in the short term, but again, all they're doing is trying to cover up the symptoms. So the big thing I try to tell people, and a lot of times when we're talking about sleeves and wraps, those are a lot of times the power lifters. You're covering up your knee pain. If you're trying to reach for one of those when dealing with pain, you're going about it the wrong way. You need to be addressing your pain correctly first. Now, when we're talking about like straps, a lot of times you'll see advertised straps and especially like the copper fit knee wraps and straps no that is completely going about trying to deal with your pain the wrong way throw that in the trash really get to the bottom of why your pain is starting in the first place because if you want to try and find full resolution of your pain you need to address the why and that why is often a movement-based problem On the subject of shoulder pain, a lot of times when I go in for a minor shoulder issue, they end up working on my pectoral muscle. Which Mm -hmm. types of shoulder injuries typically include a dysfunction of the pec? So what the pec does is it internally rotates the shoulder joint. Now what happens is that oftentimes we develop this imbalance, much like we talked about on the front side of the hip where the hip flexor becomes very stiff. The pecs can become very over-dominant just because of the way in which we move throughout our day. We're always sitting at the computer, 
pushing stuff in front of us, chopping things up if we're preparing dinner. We're not really using the back side of our shoulder to the same degree. So we develop this imbalance where the front side is dominant and the back side is under dominant. We're very over facilitated on the front side and it just pulls us into a very poor position. Over time, this can lead to some of the problems like people have developed, maybe like a biceps tendonitis or an impingement. But again, those are all pathoanatomical diagnoses. So what we need to do is go through a proper screen to figure out, well, what else do I need to do? Because sure, if your pecs are tight, some flexibility, soft tissue work can be very helpful. But then we also need to work on fixing that stiffness or under facilitation on the back side of the body. And a lot of times that just may be some simple activation drills and strengthening exercises to fix the muscles that lie on the back side of the shoulder. And that may be your mid, your low trap, your rhomboids, posterior rose hitter cuff, things like that, that will help create a more balanced shoulder and a shoulder that's less prone to injury. Elbow pain can be attributed to nerve issues in the cervical spine is there a good way to screen yourself to rule something like this out? Yeah, a very simple way is just when you're standing or sitting is moving your head side to side, looking up, looking down, even putting a little compression by pushing straight down on your head. But if you're moving your head side to side, up and down, and you can recreate pain within your elbow, it's probably something coming from your neck. So that's something that I often recommend people go get checked out by a professional just because the neck, there's a lot of things that can be dealing with up in there. And sometimes it's empowering to know, hey, this is something that I don't want to try to take a crack at fixing myself. Your section on ankle pain deals in large part with Achilles injuries. Why is stretching the calf a bad idea for an Achilles and really all tendinopathy injuries? Yeah, the big reason for that is often because the reason that the pain started uh, was because of compression at the backside of the ankle. So when you create a stretch of the calf muscles, you're taking that Achilles tendon and basically jamming it against the backside of the ankle bone. And what happens is that it can lead to sometimes a little bit more irritation for the certain types of Achilles tendinopathy. And what that does is just exacerbate the symptoms and makes it worse. And while you may get a little short-term relief, you're not getting much long-term relief. You're not really truly fixing the problem of that. So the idea is that we screen, we try to figure out what specific type of tendinopathy you're dealing with down there, and then try to go about fixing it a little bit differently. And oftentimes it's more of a load-related issue. Sometimes we can use a little heel lift in the back of our shoe. But I find that of all the ankle injuries, people develop and I'm talking again more so to people that would walk into the weight room. You're going to be dealing with tendinopathies. You're not usually dealing with sprained ankles in the weight room or things like that. So the ankle chapter specifically for my audience that I was writing with this book was more so dealing with the Achilles tendon as that I found to be probably one of the most common issues. And this is more so for people that are over the age of probably 25. The Achilles tendon is not usually something that you see become injured with a young population. You end this book with a hard conversation with some that dispels some myths about ice. Contrary mm -hmm. to popular opinion, why is ice a bad thing to put on injuries and sore muscles? And this is probably going to be a big eye-opening, mind-blowing discussion for a lot of people to hear, but ice is not 
the best way to fix an injury. And this is something that goes against everything we've been taught. From a young age, you smash your finger in a door, you're told, put some ice on it. Your knee hurts after squatting, put some ice on it. We see all these images throughout our life. If you watch Michael Jordan, you know, after a game, he's got some ice on his knee. So why is ice so bad? Think about it like this. If you were to ask any medical doctor, what are the three stages of injury? Inflammation, and then rebuilding and remodeling. And what happens is that if you don't have inflammation, you don't have the rebuilding phase and the remodeling phase. You need inflammation. So inflammation is not a bad thing, despite what you've been told. You need inflammation in order to kickstart the healing process. Well, what happens is that when you ice a joint, you limit inflammation from occurring. You stop inflammation. Think about it like this. If you had a car crash on a highway, instantly the medical emergency vehicles are called to rush to the scene. You have the fire truck, the ambulance, the police department. Well, when you ice, it's basically like you just set up a roadblock on the highway and all of the medical emergency vehicles, the cleanup crew, they're stopped from getting to the crash. They can't help the people that are injured. They're not going to clean up any of the debris that's scattered across the highway. They're just blocked. That's what happens when you ice. So you're delaying the healing process. So what we need to do in place is actually be proactive in finding pain-free positions and trying to move and create proper movement that will then amplify and optimize our healing. Here's another way to think about it like this. If you knew a big snow was coming, would you go out every single hour and brush off your front driveway? Or would you wait until there's two feet of snow piled up and then go out? I would say most people probably want to be a little bit more proactive and, you know, shove off a little bit of snow so they're not just like, you know, smashed with two feet of snow. Well, when you have an injury, you're slowly having the snow accumulate. And that's the swelling that comes along with the inflammation process. Swelling is not good nor bad. It's just there. It's a part that occurs with injury. Well, if you can be proactive and actually move well and find pain-free positions and create some muscle contraction with things like maybe a neuromuscular stimulation device, you can actually get ahead of the healing game, spark that healing process, and be better off in the long term than if you iced your knee or iced your low back. And it's the same concept with working out too, correct? When you work out, you create inflammation. You don't want to tamp down that inflammation because it's going to affect the muscle's ability to repair itself. Yeah, basically. So you see a lot of these great athletes, they use ice baths. And, you know, while in the short term, they may feel like it helps them bounce back quickly, long-term damage done by ice bathing a lot actually limits the repair of muscles and blunts the ability to gain strength and gain muscle because you're not allowing your body to optimize its recovery in the long term. So yeah, I'm not a big fan of using ice baths. I'd much rather people take an active recovery approach. Dr. Aaron Horshig is a physical therapist, strength and conditioning coach, speaker, and writer. His work includes Squat University, and he's the author of the new book, Rebuilding Milo, The Lifter's Guide to Fixing Common Injuries and Building a Strong Foundation for Enhancing Performance. Aaron, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this book. Hey, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. 
And thanks to you for listening. Go to booksonpod.com to hear all of our episodes. Also to subscribe to this show. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod. Books on Pod.